Well, hello, this is episode 279, and today we are chatting about continuous glucose monitoring. If you follow me on Instagram at Leanne Vogel, and I shared this a little bit on Facebook also at Healthful Pursuit, I wore a continuous glucose monitor for the month of September and a little bit into October. I recorded today's episode before I put on a continuous glucose monitor, so it was so great to record the episode knowing nothing about how continuous glucose monitoring works, and now listening to the episode, having had 28 days wearing this bad boy, I can tell you that I have so much to share on continuous glucose monitoring. So before we get to today's episode, I want to share a little bit of my experience, give you some resources. So if you want to learn more about continuous glucose monitoring and how this relates to your ketogenic diet, you can do that. I really want to make today's episode as resourceful, as impactful as possible, because guys, I thought continuous glucose monitoring was kind of stupid. I'll say it right now. Wearing a monitor on your arm for 28 days where your phone tells you what your glucose is sounds horrible. <laughs> like I was so not down with this plan. And now having worn it, after I did this episode, our, our guest today is Casey and she works over at Levels, which is the monitor that I ended up using. And after recording this episode, I was like, oh my gosh, I need one. They sent me one. I used it. And now I'm obsessed and I can't wait to do another 28 days. I've learned so much, not only about my body, but it's also verified so much of the work that I've done in the ketogenic space of like, yep, I was right on that. Yep. This is how this works. Yep. This is so cool. And to watch how by wearing a continuous glucose monitor, you know exactly what your glucose is all of the time. So you can really tell what time of the month. Yes, I said what time of the month you are more susceptible to having higher glucose than you are at other times of the month. Your hormones and everything plays such a huge role. And it's been just so fun getting to see when it's best for me to eat keto, when it's not when I am more sensitive or less sensitive to carbohydrates. Oh, it's so good. So today's episode, we're talking about um, one-time testing glucose and ketones versus ongoing levels, which is best, uh, what information you're going to get by wearing a continuous glucose monitor, by knowing your glucose all the time, why testing ketone levels may not be the best way to checking your metabolism, how the metabolism works in relation to insulin, glucose, and your ketogenic diet. So by wearing a continuous glucose monitor, this little monitor that sits on your tricep area. And no, it's not a needle in your arm. I thought that for the first 14 days of wearing my first continuous glucose monitor and it's not a needle. So by wearing this, you start to understand how your metabolism works and you start to understand how resistant you are to insulin. Uh, we're going to be chatting about stress and glucose, our evolutionary adaptation through time, uh, using glucose as a marker for health to create metabolic flexibility long-term. Oh geez, so many things. Uh, food order. This was a big one. When I started combining certain foods, I started learning that my body responds best to certain things. Like I can actually have quite a few beans and it does nothing to my glucose, does no nothing a negative to my digestion, actually helps with my bowel movements. And so that has been like a game changer for me to add beans to my ketogenic diet. Yes, I said beans. I cannot even believe that I'm saying that I'm eating beans on my ketogenic diet. It's just all exciting things. So if after listening to today's episode, which is a very, very basic understanding of how continuous glucose monitoring works, if you're like, 
whoa, I want to find out what happened to Leanne and what, you know, how her first 28 days were. I'm going to include three different links in today's show notes. So if you're not sure where show notes are, you can just go to the Google machine and type in the app that you're using and then show notes to figure out how to access the show notes of your specific app. Because in those show notes, that's where I put all resources and such for all of our episodes. So in today's show notes, I'm going to link up to three different videos that I made while wearing my CGM. So I am back on YouTube sharing keto stuff, really excited about that. So there are three videos that I'll link up to in the show notes on that. And because our guest today is Casey and we're chatting about the Levels app and the monitor and how it all works, I'm also going to include a link to the Levels uh, CGM monitor and app. So if you go to levels.link slash KDP, you're going to skip the line. I think the line is like 29,000 people that are waiting to get a monitor. So by getting the monitor with levels, um, normally you have to get a prescription, a doctor's prescription for getting this monitor, but levels does everything for you. You just fill out all the paperwork and then your 28 days of monitoring monitors rather come to your house. And then you wear them for 28 days. You get to use the app. It's super informative. So I'm just going to put that in the show notes because I know that I'm going to get messages like, but how do I get this thing? This is so cool. And um, you're right. It is pretty much the coolest thing I've experienced all year, which I guess is saying like not a lot because 2020, oh man, trash fire. (laughs) However, um, this is really, really exciting stuff. I can't wait to share it with you. So I guess I should introduce our guest today. Her name is Casey Means. She's an MD and Stanford-trained physician, chief medical officer, and co-founder of metabolic health company Levels, and associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. Her mission is to maximize human potential and reverse the epidemic of preventable chronic diseases by empowering individuals with tech-enabled tools that can inform smart, personalized, and sustainable dietary and lifestyle choices. Dr. Means's perspective has been recently featured in Forbes, Entrepreneur Magazine, The Hill, Metabolism, Endocrine Today, Endocrine Web, Well and Good, and Dr. Michael Greger's author of How Not to Die video series. She is an award-winning biomedical researcher with past research positions at the NIH, Stanford School of Medicine, and NYU. Oh, man. Casey's so brilliant. Like, whether you're interested in continuous glucose monitoring or not, this episode will blow your mind. It definitely has mine. It put me on a totally different trajectory, really had me re-inspired in sharing keto information as it relates to hormones. I mean, Casey's just so smart. And today's episode was such a treat. I'm so excited to share it with you today. And if you have questions about today's content, you can go to healthfulpursuit.com slash contact and ask me. You can also catch up on previous podcast episodes and notes from today's show by going to ketodietpodcast.com. Okay, let's do this thing. Hey, I'm Leanne Vogel, and you're listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. I've put together a free 21-page guide on achieving weight loss on your keto diet if nothing is working as a little thank you for being here today. Grab your free guide at ketoforwomen.com to get the steps you need to overcome the hurdles standing in your way. Casey, how's it going? Great. How are you, Leanne? I'm so good. I'm so good. I'm so happy to have you on the show today. 
I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. So we already have been chatting for 12 minutes and figured (laughs) I better press record because this conversation is so good. And that's what I love um, about having really awesome guests that are just so open and knowledgeable and wonderful to come on the show. And today I really want to focus on continuous glucose monitoring and and what this means. It might be a new concept for a lot of our listeners because as keto folk, we generally um, gear toward um, ketone monitoring as opposed to glucose. Everyone just forgets <laughs> about glucose. So I'd love to just pick your brain on everything. Glucose, metabolism. Are you game? I love it. Let's do it. Um, so I guess I should start off because we're going to probably going to be saying CGM, CGM a lot. Can you tell me (laughs) what is continuous glucose monitoring? Sure. Absolutely. So continuous glucose monitors is this fabulous little technology. It's basically like the size of a quarter and you stick it on the back of your arm. It's a wearable device and it is monitoring your glucose 24 hours a day and sending that information to your smartphone. So you can track your glucose essentially in real time and get this really granular data stream about how all aspects of diet and lifestyle are affecting your glucose levels. So this is a technology that was uh, it's been around for probably over a decade and it was, it is initially and, and currently FDA approved for the management of type one and type two diabetes. So this is a real game changer for people with uh, diabetes because as opposed to just pricking your finger, you know, one or two or three or four times a day to see how uh, your food, you know, impacted your glucose and also to be able to dose, you know, insulin properly, you now don't have to prick your finger. You've got this little sensor that's on the back of the arm all the time and is giving you, you know, I guess 10 times or more data points per, per 24 hours just automatically in the background. So total, total game changer. And I think, you know, a lot of people are really interested in having more objective information about what to eat and what foods are are good for them personally. And so many people have started to think, hey, this is a really interesting technology. Maybe this could actually be used for a wider population, people who are health-seeking and and don't necessarily have a diagnosed metabolic disease and be used as this tool that can actually really give this super rapid closed-loop feedback on how food is affecting health and also how other lifestyle factors are affecting metabolism. So we know that not only food, but also how much we sleep, how we respond to stress and the exercise we're doing, all of these things feed into our glucose levels every day. So it's a really neat way to track how all these different lifestyle variables are affecting your health. And the cool thing about glucose is that it change, changes super rapidly in the bloodstream. So it's not really, it's not a lagging indicator of what you're doing. You can eat a handful of grapes and see your glucose shoot up in 15 minutes. It, you know, it can be starting to, to go up really fast. So for the first time, we can actually say that this specific food had this specific impact on my health. And I think people are really craving that type of objective information about about their diet because there's a lot of loud voices in the nutrition space and there's a lot of confusion about about what's the right way to go. So objective data really um, cuts through a lot of that noise. And I guess one other thing I'll add is that the other really interesting thing is that people respond very differently uh, to the same carbohydrate source. So there's actually tons of biochemical individuality between how people respond to the same carbohydrate load. And 
So, you know, you and I could both eat a banana and have completely different glucose responses. I could go up five points and, you know, you, you could go up 50 points. And that means that it's probably, it's having a very different physiologic effect. For one of us, it's, it's creating a much more uh, elevated insulin rise and potentially blocking fat, fat oxidation. For the other, it might be generating very little insulin rise. And, and so might be able to, you know, allow someone to stay in a ketogenic state if they eat that. So having that that granularity into how a particular food source is actually affecting your glucose levels is 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 very helpful and and that that understanding of that um, biochemical individuality and how people respond very differently to the same carb source it's it kind of goes against that sort of standardized glycemic index sort of scale that we have been you know shown for years um, and and really moves it to this direction of hey maybe we actually each have a glycemic index for ourselves for each food and we need to kind of figure that out for for our, our, ourselves um, individually so that's what CGM can can do continuous glucose monitoring and so it's kind of moving from this initial population as a treatment device to really being more of a wearable that allows people to have this this finally be able to kind of answer that question, like how is this food affecting my health? So. Okay, friends, there's a new partner in town and they've overtaken my freezer where ButcherBox used to sit. Their name is Belcampo and I want to take a moment to introduce you to them. So here's the thing. Most places don't care about the treatment of the animal, the taste of the meat, the impact on the environment or the health of their customers because they're just not involved in that segment of the industry. But at Belcampo, they do things differently with purpose. They care about all of it and see that everything is interconnected and hopes to create an experience and product better in every way for people and for our planet. Belcampo's farming practices are climate positive and certified humane, and the products are rich in omega-3s with significantly less omega-6s, higher in linoleic acid, vitamin C, B, E, richer in minerals, and deliciously healthful fats. Their beef is 100% grass-fed and finished. No livery aftertaste, all raised in the USA. Belcampo pork is pasture-raised heritage, the stuff I grew up on in Canada and love so dearly. Belcampo poultry are organic and pasture-raised, rich in antioxidants and omega-3s. So I'm obsessed with Belcampo. It's next level farming with meat you can trust start to finish, meat that you can feel good about, and meat that tastes good delivered right to your door. You can get 20% off with the code KDP on your first purchase, valid until the end of December 2020. They have a nice selection of special cuts for the holidays, including turkeys for pre-order. And if you're looking for like everyday meat, check for the keto meatballs and carnitas. There's really something for any meat eater to love. Again, that's bellcampo.com slash KDP. Use the code KDP at checkout for 20% off your entire first order. And this excludes sale items. If you're unsure of the link, simply check out today's show notes for all the details. You just shared so much. I mean, (laughs) it makes me totally want to try this. I'm so bummed that I don't have it yet. So how does this differ? I mean, you just shared so, so much and I want to break it down into pieces. How does this differ from testing glucose like once a day? Like oftentimes, you know, especially in the keto space, people will, you know, test their glucose perhaps, I don't know, after a meal or before bed, perhaps they're more geared toward ketone levels. Like I betcha 
at least 70% of the women that just heard your beautiful introduction to CGM are like, yeah, but ketone levels are more important for me because I'm on a ketogenic diet. Can we break that down a little bit further into testing specifically and the differences that you've seen perhaps in people that you've interacted with that are using CGM versus ones that used to do ketone levels? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first question of like, what, what's the difference between like a one-time point measurement, you know, pricking your finger once per day and maybe getting a fasting glucose or checking after a meal versus checking, getting this sort of continuous data stream. And so I'll, I think the easiest place to start is with the fasting glucose. So a lot of people are checking their glucose first thing in the morning, people who don't um, have a diagnosis of diabetes to so just make sure that they're still kind of in the normal range and, you know, see if it's bouncing around much. And that can be very, very helpful. But the thing about fasting glucose, which is your, your glucose first thing in the morning after not having consumed any calories for eight hours prior, is that that metric actually, you know, it can stay fairly stable even if you are kind of moving in the wrong direction on the metabolic spectrum. And the reason for that is because of insulin. So right now, our diagnostic criteria, one of the main things we use to put people in the category of whether they're normal, pre-diabetic or diabetic is fasting glucose. If your fasting glucose is less than 100 milligrams per deciliter, when you go to the doctor and get your finger pricked, then you're considered quote unquote normal. If you're between 100 and 125, you're considered pre-diabetic. And if you're 126 milligrams per deciliter or above, you're considered diabetic. But what's interesting is that, so just to kind of back up and do a little bit of met metabolism 101. So each time you um, elevate your glucose in your blood, you are going to also cause your pancreas to release insulin. And the reason you do that is because insulin floats around in the bloodstream and it's a hormone that combined two cells and basically tell the cells to take up that glucose. So you have a glucose spike, then you have an insulin spike, and then that allows the glucose to be shuttled into the cells. And when you do that, over and over again, because let's say you're eating a standard American diet that's full of refined carbs and processed sugar, your body is pumping out a ton of insulin. And ultimately the cells become resistant to that insulin. They're like, there's so much of this insulin around, we're going to have to like block some of the signal. And then what happens is to get the same amount of glucose into your cells, you actually have to produce more insulin. So what happens is you become hyperinsulinemic and that's problematic because that insulin has effects all over the body. And when it's floating around, it can cause lots of different problems. And insulin resistance basically means that your cells aren't doing a good job of getting this substrate into them to create cellular energy. And when that happens in different parts of the body, it can create all sorts of symptoms and problems. And there's so many diseases and symptoms that are associated with insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction. And basically where that's showing up in the body, it can look like anything. If you're insulin resistant in the brain, it can look like dementia or fatigue or chronic pain. If it is insulin resistance in the ovaries, it can look like polycystic ovarian syndrome and infertility. If it's insulin resistance in the skin, it can look like your oil gland, sebaceous gland, hyperplasia and acne. If it's, you know, it's, it's basically like where it shows up. If it's insulin resistance in the liver, it can look like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So having that high insulin essentially can keep your glucose almost like looking the same, but you're producing tons more insulin to keep that glucose the same. So getting back to fasting glucose, let's say your fasting glucose is 80. You could be someone whose fasting glucose is 80 and your insulin's really low, or you could be someone whose fasting glucose is 80, but your insulin is super high to keep it at that level. So insulin is actually probably much more effective as an early marker of people who have some problem with their metabolism because it's going to rise and you're going to 
to be hyperinsulinemic far before that fasting glucose actually starts to rise. Once it starts rising, you know, closer to 100 or into the 100 to 125 range of prediabetes, that means that your insulin has been high and you've been insulin resistant for a long time. So in a lot of ways, long story short, fasting insulin isn't a very granular way to tell if you're metabolically healthy. Certainly if it's really high, like you know you have a problem, but there are going to be years when it's looking pretty normal and there still could be a problem. The nice thing about doing it with ketone monitoring is that another function of insulin is that it blocks fat oxidation. So insulin is a signal to the body that, oh, we've got tons of glucose around, so we don't need to burn fat for fuel. So it actually molecularly stops fat from being burned. So if you are, you have a fasting glucose level that is, you know, in the normal range, and you're also definitely making ketones because you're monitoring your ketones, that's a good indicator that your insulin's probably pretty good and pretty low because you're burning fat. You're, you are fat oxidizing. So it's really nice to actually pair those two together, but that's just a, just a sort of a little overview there. So one, so bottom line is a one-time point measurement doesn't give you a full picture. When you actually can track it throughout the day and see what's happening after every meal, that gives you a lot more information. So if you're pricking your finger after a meal, you might be catching the upswing of your glucose spike. You might be catching the downswing of your glucose spike. You might be catching the peak, but it's very difficult to know if you're actually capturing both the peak glucose elevation after a meal, and also how long you're staying elevated. People who are more insulin resistant, people who are starting to go down the path of metabolic dysfunction, their glucose is going to stay elevated for longer after a meal. They're going to probably have a higher spike, stay elevated for longer. And so you can actually see all that granularity when you have, you know, this every 15 minute time point, and you can essentially build like a little graph of the whole glucose spike and kind of you know, really, really have a clear picture of how you're responding. And, and that's important. And the shape of that glucose curve after a meal, um, lots of research um, has gone into showing that, that that is really quite predictive of your metabolic health overall. So you want to see essentially a very low peak after a meal and you want to come down really quickly. That's ideal. Staying really gentle, small rolling hills in your glucose curve. You don't want to see these huge mountains up and down jagged peaks. And so that's the type of information that you can get from seeing it with a continuous glucose monitor that you just can't unless you're pricking your finger, you know, 20, 30, 40 times a day. That would cost so much money to do. (laughs) (laughs) And guaranteed you'd forget. (laughs) Yeah. So you mentioned after every meal, I'm guessing before, during, after activity, um, you mentioned stress. What other, what other things have you noticed by, by using CGM where you're like, whoa, that's incredible. Like, I'm, I'm wondering like after meditation, would you see something because you're not stressed? Like I have all these questions about Mm. what would happen. What have you seen? It's such a great question. And yes, like the stress thing is super, super fascinating. So stress and glucose have a fascinating relationship and a history that is really rooted in evolutionary adaptation. So if you think back to like the original sources of stress, like they were very physical stresses and threats that we had. And, you know, this sort of like 
common example you always hear about is like being chased by a lion. Like that was like the stress, the acute stress back in the day. Now our acute stressors are like getting text messages and emails and like, you know, people honking, but like back in, you know, ancestral times, we're thinking about like being chased by a lion. So when the body was stressed, the body essentially was like, okay, we have some sort of physical challenge we have to overcome. And so we need to have energy for our muscles to work. So the body, when the stress hormone cortisol is released, that hormone And regardless of whether it's a physical threat or a psychological stress, like regardless of whether you actually need glucose for your muscles or not, we still, when we release cortisol, that's going to travel to our liver and tell the liver to dump out its stored glucose into the bloodstream to essentially raise the level of the blood glucose very quickly to feed all these muscles for whatever threat is coming, whatever stressor you have to fight. And so that still happens today. And so certainly in a lot of my patients and, you know, in our, in the, in the customers of the the company that I run that is distributing, you know, CGMs uh, to healthy individuals for this personalized nutrition use case, we see a lot of people reporting, uh, you know, that stressful situations like big meetings with their companies or stressful conversations with people in their family cause a market glucose elevation. And there is also some research that breath work can have a really positive impact on on those glucose levels and mitigating that. So something that we're building or building into our product is going to be being able to track objective measures of stress. So like heart rate variability and help people create these connections between stress that may, they not, might not even be aware of, but that shows up in, our, in their HRV, maybe dipping and building that one-to-one connection between this is what's happening in your body from a stress perspective. And then this is what's happening to your glucose. And And then that can serve as a foundation for people realizing how important it is is to adopt these these practices, these mind-body practices that you know, have, have strong evidence to suggest that they really can get your, your stress down. So, you know, the, the deep breathing and, and all the different things that we can do to, to get into more of a parasympathetic nervous system state. There's, it was a really neat, like, uh, article that I read on the Wim Hof method blog. I believe that's where it was. And I can, I can send it to you potentially for the show notes, but it was about people doing the Wim Hof breathing method, wearing CGMs, and then had a really strong impact on glucose levels and bringing it down. And I don't think that's been supported by like peer reviewed literature at this point, but it's certainly fascinating, um, anecdotal evidence. So I think it's both, I guess, I think the glucose can be both a really great, biofeedback tool for stress because it can kind of show it's another thing to show you whether like if you're fasted and your blood glucose is going up it might be a signal that you are stressed and you might not even be realizing it and then also as a way to see how your mind body practices are affecting your glucose I love that. I so love that. I would have so much fun doing different breath work and just seeing how it all functions. You know what I love more than anything in the entire world is helping people. And when I meet a complete stranger and they're telling me about symptoms that they're having or symptoms that their dog is having or their loved one, oftentimes the first thing that comes into my head is, you should try CBD oil. And I'm in fact sitting in my car right now. I just drove an hour and a half to a friend's place to drop off a bottle of Eaton Hemp CBD oil. Their dog's having a really difficult time with an inflammatory condition. Nobody knows what it is. And I just thought again, you need to try CBD oil. Now CBD oil has massively reduced my symptoms of anxiety 
But CBD oil does so much more, including inflammation reduction, improving digestive function, improving sleep quality, reduces acne. But here's what you have to know before you grab a random bottle and start supplementing. Research, research, research your options thoroughly. Look for a CBD oil that uses hemp seed oil as the carrier oil. Now, the hemp seed oil means that the plant has been kept in its purest whole plant form, allowing for the terpenes and cannabinoids to work together in unison in your body to give you the powerful entourage effect that everyone is always raving about when it comes to CBD. Among high-quality CBD options, Eaton Hemp's unfiltered full-spectrum CBD oil is an all-organic choice. Again, all organic choice. They're one of the first unfiltered CBD products to be USDA certified organic. This guarantees what you see is what you get. No toxins, no pesticides, no label trickery. Eaton Hemp uses hemp seed oil as a carrier for CBD, giving you the full entourage effect, maximum absorption, potency, effectiveness, terpenes, cannabinoids, aka results, which is all good things. And if you're like supplementing, how do I even do this? Now, I personally take a dropper full a day with my dogs up until both our dogs passed away. Lexi was supplementing with 15 milligrams. She's a 60 pound dog and Pebbles, who is a 10 pound dog, did a dropper to a day. Now with our dog Coconut, who's developed a little bit of inflammation, I've started giving her 10 milligrams a day and she's an 80 pound dog. I personally couldn't even imagine my life without CBD. It extended Lexi's life by three years, giving us so much more time to spend together when vet said it wasn't even possible. I cannot tell you how powerful a supplement this has been for me and my family. Now, I chatted with my friends over at Eaton Hemp and they put together a sweet deal for you. If you go to eatonhempcbd.com slash keto diet, again, that's Eaton, E-A-T-O-N, hemp, cbd.com slash keto diet and use a coupon code keto diet you're going to get 20% off all Eaton hemp cbd products that includes the salves and all the crazy things you can get into when it comes to cbd that's 20% off with the code keto diet at eatonhempcbd.com slash keto diet so for somebody like me who understands the body and understands that if i see peaks that that's not a good thing and I can adjust, but, but what do I do with all the data? Like as a person who's listening to the show and now they're seeing, you know, these high highs and these low lows and these peaks, not the rolling Hills. What do you do? Like, Mm. what do I do next? It's such a good (laughs) question. Yeah. Like that's the key thing. And the really amazing thing about glucose as a biomarker is that it's so highly actionable and it's really easy. (laughs) I mean, quote unquote easy, but you know, it is, we basically know how to turn around our metabolic health. And really it's a question of just identifying where there are opportunities and then, and then learning how to, you know, move things in the, in the right direction. So first thing I, I think just for people who may not be totally aware of like why a glucose spike is bad. So a glucose spike, you know, is essentially, like we said, like a, a, a big peak after a meal. And you're most often going to see these after, you know, a higher carbohydrate meal, but sometimes that things can be very surprising because there are certain carbohydrates that may really affect you that don't affect another person. So that can be 
you know, quite enlightening when, you know, I think we were talking before the episode, like us when talking about like the example of like a sweet potato could set someone, th- one person through the roof and barely touch another person's glucose. So the reason you don't want to have that big, big spike is because hyperglycemia or high glucose can lead to quite a few physiologic processes that are damaging to the body. So the first thing it can do is it can generate inflammation. So high spikes tell the body again, like with that, that stress pathway, like, okay, there's maybe a threat. Like why is there so much glucose in the body? And so that can actually trigger inflammation. It can also trigger oxidative stress. So too many free radicals in the body and it can trigger glycation, which is the process where sugar is actually just sticking to things in the body, sticking to proteins and um, cell membranes and, and other things. And when glucose sticks to things in the body, it can cause dysfunction in how those um, cellular structures are working. So inflammation, oxidative stress, and glycation are all um, mechanistic reasons why you don't want to have these glucose spikes. And then the second thing is that it's going to uh, stimulate the insulin release. And over time, repeated insulin surges are going to lead down the path of insulin resistance, which is essentially the path of physiology of how you know, diabetes and prediabetes develop, you become so insulin resistant that your glucose, it's, you cannot compensate, you can't get enough glucose into the cells and the cell and the glucose starts rising in the blood. And then a third thing is that when you do have a big spike and you have that big insulin release, you can often have what's called reactive hypoglycemia, which is that insulin essentially soaks all that glucose up into the cells. And then you actually dip below what your initial baseline was. You go up and then you shoot down. And that reactive hypoglycemia state can be really subjectively troublesome. That can lead to jittery, being jittery, uh, feeling anxious, having that post-meal slump situation uh, where you kind of feel an energy decline. And so it, it all around can kind of throw you out of your flow. So you don't, you don't want to have that skyrocket and then, and then you know, plummet. So those are some of the reasons why you don't want to do that. But then the question is, so how do we minimize those spikes? So that's essentially the foundation of what my company does. We have created software that takes this you know, raw glucose data stream and makes it highly actionable and insight driven so that we do give people the tools to understand their data stream and then take the steps to move it in the right direction. So I'd say the the you know, one of the biggest ways to keep uh, glucose levels stable is to really understand food in a much more granular level. So the first basic thing is understanding which foods spike you. Like what are the biggest offenders? A lot of people have been shocked. We have a lot of customers um, and even on our founding team, people who used to eat, used to eat um, oatmeal for breakfast. And they're like, oh, it's heart healthy. And this is like really ideal. And you know, the package makes it sound awesome. But for many people, like rolled oats will spend, send their glucose up into like the 170s, 180s, extremely high, high levels that you probably never want to go to. And so it can just help you feel realize like which foods are, are very problematic for you. And, and one of the easiest things you can do is start to really minimize those. But then the second thing, as opposed to minimizing, restricting, is you can start pairing them with other foods that help minimize the glucose spike. So we know that adding fat and protein to carbohydrates typically does lower or blunt a glucose spike. And food order actually makes a big difference on this. So 
if you put your protein and your fat and your fiber, you know, and sort of more roughage like foods before you eat your higher carbohydrate um, foods in a meal, it will also lower the glucose spike. And there's lots of interesting adjuncts you can add to your meal, things like cinnamon and vinegar, which are insulin sensitizers, which can keep your glucose spikes lower. So as opposed to being sort of like restrictive, here are all the things we need to cut out of our diet. It's actually much more about how can we modulate the food to make it more glycemically friendly. And that's just food and food pairing, but there's also things like food timing. So it's pretty well established at this point that eating carbohydrates earlier in the day, like between 8 a.m. and 2 p.m. is going to have less of a glycemic response than if you eat them late at night, especially after the sun goes down. And part of that has to do with the fact that melatonin, which is released from the pineal gland at night to kind of help you get ready for um, sleep, that that has an impact on our insulin signaling. And so, yeah, so eating the exact same meal at like 8 p.m. versus first thing in the morning, we have a very, very different glycemic response. So that's a lot of the stuff related to food. Um, certainly fasting can play a big role. Time-restricted feeding and fasting are very advantageous for overall metabolic health and, and, ad, and tools that you can use to kind of help build that you know, positive glycemic response. But then there's all these other things in your metabolic toolbox that you can try. And the biggest levers would be improving sleep, improving the stress response, and improving exercise, uh, quant essentially quantity. So sleep, stress, and exercise both have really big impacts. So if you're stressed and you eat a certain carbohydrate, you might have a much bigger response than if you are very calm and really practicing mindful eating and eat the same carbohydrate. There's even been studies looking at diabetic individuals who did mindful eating practices before their meals, and they had significantly different glycemic responses to the same carbohydrates from when they um, did not do the mindful eating approach before their meals. So that's something so important for us to think about is, you know, how we approach our meals, how we're feeling when we eat. Um, we, you know, we got to get back into that, that state where we're, we're calm and we're relaxed and we're in this parasympathetic, parasympathetic rest and digest state when we eat. With exercise, you know, really the moral of the story is any type works to help metabolic health and glucose spikes. And the more you do it, <laughs> the better. So resistance training, flexibility and agility training, low-grade aerobic exercise, moderate and high-intensity interval training aerobic exercise all have been shown to improve insulin sensitivity um, and be good for, for glucose levels. And even something as simple as a 20-minute walk can decrease your glucose levels after a meal. There was one awesome study that I love where they took three groups of people and they basically said, okay, each of these groups is going to walk for 60 minutes a day, but one third of them are going to uh, do 20 minutes of walking before each meal. One group is going to do 20 minutes of walking after each meal. And one group is going to walk for two minutes every 30 minutes throughout the waking day. All three of those groups had lower 24-hour glucose levels than the group that didn't exercise at all. But the one that had the best glucose levels was actually the group that walked for two minutes every 30 minutes. So it seems like frequency of exercise and just like doing it more often, even if it's two minutes of walking, moving those major muscle groups, getting those quads and those hamstrings, just moving a little bit increases our insulin sensitivity, helps with the spikes. And then the last thing is sleep. So sleep has a massive impact on how much you spike. And we've seen tons of people who, even in our early customers, who, you know, will get, you know, six hours of sleep compared to their normal eight and see just that their fasting glucose is elevated the next day, their post-meal spikes are elevated the next day, everything's kind of off. And there's been tons and tons of research in this um, area about how sleep impacts metabolic health. There was one study where they took 
I believe it was six healthy young men. They deprived them of sleep for four nights. And I think the deprivation was that they got four hours of sleep. So they still slept. They didn't keep them up constantly, but basically sleep deprived them. And they essentially took these healthy men and they're put them into the pre-diabetic state. They, they essentially turned them into pre-diabetics by just depriving their sleep for a very short amount of time. And this was reversible. Once they then put them back into normal sleep conditions, they, things bounced back very quickly, but it is profound how much sleep deprivation can impact, can impact glucose. And even going from 7.5 hours a night to 6.5 hours a night, there has been research that showed that that will elevate glucose levels the next day. So it's very, very important. And sleep has a really big impact on, they looked at the mechanisms of this. And one of the key mechanisms is that sleep deprivation increases cortisol levels. And like we talked about earlier, cortisol impacts glucose in the blood. It also affects our ghrelin and leptin levels. So ghrelin and leptin are some of the hormones that tell us whether we're hungry or we're satiated. And it throws off the balance of ghrelin and leptin and essentially makes us much more hungry and more likely to overeat and more likely to crave carbohydrates. It also generates inflammation and inflammation has a very you know negative relationship with glucose. So there's lots of reasons for that. So, you know, best way to keep you know, these spikes down is to learn about your food, improve sleep, improve stress management, improve exercise. And those are kind of some of the key levelers that um, have been shown in the research and that we're just, we've, we've basically built into all aspects of our software to help make this data stream as actionable as possible. So long answer, but those are some of the key things. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode. I'd love to see where you're listening from. You can snap a pic and tag me at Leanne Vogel or leave a review for the show on your favorite podcast player. It helps me out tremendously. Okay, back to the good stuff. So beautiful. And I I was really amazed by the exercise piece of just like my takeaway is just move. Yeah. <laughs> like Whatever you choose, move your body. And I think we spend a lot of, I know that I have time, energy, money in the past of like, but I have to do this because this is the best. And it feels like by continuous glucose monitoring, we're kind of cutting out a lot of the time, energy, money, the guess it, the guesswork of trying to live a quote unquote healthy life. Because I guess where I'm going with this is, you know, you jump on Instagram and somebody says that their program is going to do X, Y, Z for you. And so you get it and it doesn't work and you don't know why it's not working or what happened by having something like this. It feels like there's a level of liberation from the bio-individual standpoint. Also the, you know, just understanding what works for my body and why so that I can develop a program that works for me. That's really easy. Would that be fair to say? I think it's a really good point. And it's so efficient. It's a very efficient way of figuring this stuff out. Um, things that people have been, you know, trial and erroring with for years, you know, and when our weight and sort of our subjective feelings are the only things we have to track how nutrition is kind of affecting us. Like we haven't had tools to close the loop on whether a food is a good food for us or, or if it's potentially problematic from a metabolic function. We, you know, we get this one yearly fasting glucose check. We step on the scale maybe each morning and see kind of what happened the day before. But, and you know, we, we may feel a certain way like fatigued or this or that after a meal, but there's really been nothing to close that loop. And once you close that loop, it's yeah, like you said, it's very, very liberating because it's like, oh, like this is, doesn't work for me or this works in this context and boom, you're done. Like you don't have to think about it anymore. And I think there's two counterintuitive things about 
I think using technology like this to shape diet that are very intriguing to me. And, you know, fundamentally at my core, like I'm a, I'm a hippie, you know, functional medicine doctor. Like, yes, like I am super evidence-based and I trained at Stanford and like, I am, you know, on PubMed all day, but like fundamentally, like, you know, very, um, you know, passionate about the fact that that core behavioral fundamentals are how we generate the majority of health, you know, how we move, how we eat, how we sleep, how we stress, how we connect with other individuals, how we feel about our purpose in life, you know, and how we connect with the earth. So, you know, that's kind of where, where I'm coming from. And, and so, you know, the idea of, of, running and building a digital health tool, I think you could say that like, oh, well, that's kind of moving people away from some of those core basic fundamentals. Um, But I actually feel like what's so beautiful about it is that it's kind of using technology to ultimately get people so in touch with their body awareness. It is a way to like rapidly get people to tune into some of the signals in their body that they can then really hear and, and select out and listen to. And I know even for myself using CGM for a year, I am much more aware now of the internal cues of my body because now I've had this feedback signal that's highlighted for me and almost confirmed for me some of the things that I feel inside my body. Like for instance, if I'm fatigued in the afternoon, now I can draw a relationship between you know the food I ate, some of the lifestyle things I chose to do that day, a spike that I had, and then a subjective feeling I had. So that relationship between data, subjective feeling, and choices, that trifecta, all of a sudden really entrenches this new level of body awareness. And and that's been really positive because I think in our in our world now with so much access to technology and so much access to refined ultra-processed foods that really um, hijack some of our normal you know, hunger cues and satiety cues in the body, it can be very hard to hear what's going on inside our body. And I really love how some digital health tools, I think well-designed tools can actually help us get back to that very core state of, you know, being in touch with what's going on, which is really, really, really important for health. And I think another thing that's counterintuitive about sort of digital health technologies kind of getting us back to the basics is sort of around this concept that that is talked about a lot called like orthorexia, which is the idea of kind of being obsessed with wellness and obsessed with nutrition. And, you know, I think a lot of people talk about how kind of like the Instagram culture is and getting more people obsessed with this. Like it's almost you know, going to a pathological level of how much we're thinking about wellness. But something I love about a tool like this is that like you said, it can cut through a lot of that noise very quickly. And I actually think it it moves people away from an obsession about food because you kind of just start to build like your metabolic toolbox. You know what works for you. You know what things you can lean on to basically help you keep a low and flat glucose level. You learn which foods and food pairings work for you. And then you can kind of move on. And so I feel like I've thought less about food and weight and other things like that than I ever have in my whole life because I know now what works for me and I do it and things go well and it's very simple. So so I think there's cool opportunities that are some somewhat counterintuitive in the nutrition space with using digital health health tools like this to get us back actually to like the basics. So I love that you mentioned body awareness because if you think of the keto space, you know, something that I've always really disliked is the la 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 not listening part of tracking your macros and calories and you're like I'm hungry but la 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 not listening. I've hit my macros. You know, um to be able to have a tool 
that allows you or encourages you rather to not only seek what's good for you, uh, good for you and your body, but also being validated, like you said, Casey, of just, you know, I felt like this was a thing, but I didn't really know. And I have a feeling the more you're validated, the more you put trust on your own body and kind of start doing the la la la, not listening to buy this program because it'll do X, Y, Z. And you're like, nah, that's not going to work for me. And you know, deep down in the core of your being that yes, this is not going to work for you because you trust your body because it's being validated through a tool. And I would imagine that over time, you just get more and more and more in touch with your body as opposed to with other tools like calorie macro tracking, where I feel like oftentimes, now I'm not saying that it's not always a good tool because we've all used it on our ketogenic diet, but generally speaking, there's this, the tool knows best when it's not a a bio-individual approach to wellness. It's just a, you know, you need 75% fat. You're welcome. Here you go. Everyone takes 75% fat, 5% carbs, and there's Mm -hmm. no wiggle room. Yeah, I think that's really important. And the thing is that even though the diet itself says there's no wiggle room, you know, in the macros for it to be effective potentially, you know, it's what's interesting about the biochemical individuality piece is that there may actually be much more wiggle room than we realize. And the reason is because a carbohydrate in the gut, essentially a carbohydrate that went in the mouth does not translate to glucose in the blood. Like that is a very different process for each person. It can translate to a lot of glucose for one person and very little glucose for another person. And that depends on all these different factors. And a lot of this came out of this research five years ago that was published in the journal Cell out of the Weizmann Institute in Israel, which was called Personalized Nutrition by Prediction of Glycemic Responses. And they found that the different things that kind of dictated how a particular carbohydrate in the gut translates to glucose level in the blood is dependent on factors like microbiome composition and genetics and recent physical activity and recent sleep quality and baseline metabolic health. And when you factor these in, then you can really predict the glucose response. And the thing with keto is that it's not actually about carbohydrates. It's about glucose in the blood. Like the the carbohydrates themselves are not stimulating insulin. The glucose in the blood is stimulating insulin. And insulin is the thing that's impairing or allowing for fat burning to produce ketones. So I think moving away from the idea of like macros are king to glucose in the blood is king, like that is actually what we need to focus on, can help and maybe even liberalize it for a lot of people. We had a early beta tester, um, Allison Crook, who she is a does a lot of, you know, writing about keto. She had a life transforming experience on the keto diet. And she's, I think she's a keto girl on Instagram, but she wrote an essay for us after she went through a month of using CGM and the level software. And what she had learned, she'd been following the strict macro-based, you know, keto diet. And she actually found that there were a lot of foods that were like, quote unquote, forbidden foods on the keto diet, which for her, she found, she experimented with a lot of them during this month. And I think she was nervous to do that because she'd been so adherent and, you know, to the diet for three years. And she found that a bunch of these foods actually did nothing to her glucose levels and did not kick her out of ketosis. And so she was actually like able to greatly expand her diet. The one that she mentions in the article was carrots. She used to like pick out carrots from all her salads when she'd go to a restaurant. And she found that carrots like did very, very little to her glucose. And so she was able to put those back in and a number of other foods as well. And so for her, it was very freeing. And so kind of shifted the thinking from counting carbohydrates to actually counting and looking at 
what's happening to the glucose because that's the core physiology of keto is the glucose and insulin relationship and the ability to fat oxidize. So, um, so it's kind of an interesting, I, I, I sort of wonder if it's going to be kind of like the, the future of like keto sort of 2.0. And like, I think monitoring how monitoring glucose continuously with ketones could give people an extra level of personalization and potentially liberalization and freedom that they might not have by just following, you know, the, the particular macro recommendation. So I think that'll be interesting to see how that, how that plays out. This is actually really exciting. It's not, it's not every day that I have a guest on the show where I'm like, whoa, this is going to change everything. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Like low carbohydrates are not can glucose in the blood is like, yes. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. And it, it, it was just recently that that's even been figured out that there's a difference, you know, and that it's different between people. So it's, it's a really exciting, it's a really exciting time, you know, for this, this personal personalized health, personalized nutrition. It's, it's, I think the start of a really exciting time. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, back in 2014, when I started keto, I mean, I couldn't even imagine starting keto now with all the tools available, what's out there, the information that's out there. Like when I started keto, there was one other person online talking about it. And I made so many mistakes, like rookie, rookie mistakes that people don't even make now because they have resources and they know what they're doing. So it's so cool as time goes on and more and more people are interested in taking care of their body and understanding their body and understanding that that program on XYZ website or this or that, the other thing, if they don't talk about bio-individuality and they don't embrace that part to our, our physiology, it's, I don't know if it's worth it. And I think it's so cool mm. that we have um, these tools that are at our fingertips right now to be able to get to know our body better. Oh, absolutely. I think it's so true. Like, you know, I, I, I'm vegan and I eat a very high carb diet, but I'm able to stay in mild ketosis almost every day. And I think, you know, I try and stay between like 0.5 and one on my ketones, so like very, you know, not, not super up there, but, but that's on a diet of like basically all plants and beans and legumes and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And I think that for me, the only reason I can do that is because I know how to eat beans and legumes and fruits in a way that doesn't spike my glucose levels. And that usually means putting a ton of fat on them and protein and exercising around and all that stuff. But, but that process has been really, really interesting. And there's definitely a vegan keto movement out there happening, but, but yeah, just thinking about how, you know, you can, you can really do whatever works. It just happens to be, I'm not dogmatic about, you know, plant-based eating. It just really makes my body feel good. But to be able to do it in a way that doesn't have the collateral damage of glucose spikes is so empowering to me. Because um, I think there's probably a lot of plant-based people out there who are unknowingly, you know, thinking they're, it's extremely, extremely healthy, but are having spikes all the time. And that might be collateral damage that's not even realize to so to be able to like strike that balance and and have the diet that you want that makes your body feel great whatever that is but then like reduce the collateral damage and be able to stay in a state of metabolic flexibility i think that that is is exciting cuz you know not everyone's going to want to eat the same thing and not everyone should so to be able to have some some freedom there i think is is good for people in the face of a lot of dogmatic voices in the nutrition space so Yes, yes, yes. I agree with you. I think this is the most perfect time to end today's episode because it was just such a great summary. Do you have anything else you want to add uh, to share with our listeners today, Casey? 
Oh goodness. Well, I, I want to thank you so much for, for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it so much. And I love what you're doing and, you know, really spreading the message of good health. And yeah, certainly if people are, you know, interested in learning about, you know, vegan keto sort of lifestyle, they can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Dr. Casey's kitchen. And then if people are interested in learning more about CGM and levels, we're at Unlock Levels on Instagram and Twitter. And they can check out our site too, which is levelshealth.com. But, you know, really trying to, you know, ultimately, we're unfortunately in a very metabolically unhealthy state right now in our country. And, you know, it's there's recent research out of UNC that suggests that 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy and only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. So this is a really, you know, uphill battle. But the beauty is that with, you know, smart choices, um, we can actually totally turn the tide on that. And there's there's no point on the spectrum of metabolic disease when you can't um, move in a better direction. It is not fatal, fatalistic or deterministic. We can always move back into a state of more insulin sensitivity and, you know, regain that. And so it's a very hopeful and exciting space to work in because, you know, you know, while we're helping people really personalize their nutrition now with CGM in this product, like ultimately our goal is to help move the needle and in, in taking that 88% of metabolic dysfunction down to, to zero. And so, yeah, so it's, it's, I think it's a, it's a hopeful and exciting time and excited to see how digital health tools will, will play into this, but thank you so much for, you know, having me on. This has been really fun to chat. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and doing the work that you do. And you're just so knowledgeable. I mean, this was, I learned so much and I really appreciate you coming on the show today to share your brilliance with all of our listeners. So thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with us. Thank you, Leanne. Okay. So if you're not inspired by this whole continuous glucose monitoring thing, I don't even know what to tell you. Wasn't that just so good? Don't you just want one? I know that that's how I felt after listening to today's episode. So if you're like, I need a continuous glucose monitor right this hot minute, you can go to levels.link slash KDP to skip the line and get yours. And if you have questions, jump on Instagram and DM me at Leanne Vogel. I would love to answer your questions as it relates to CGM. Also check out those videos in the show notes where I go through what my experience was and all the struggles that I had at the beginning, mostly mental struggles. I was really worried that this, that this practice was going to be quite triggering for me and actually wasn't. So I just go through all of that. And I'm just I'm so excited to share this content with you. And I hope you really enjoyed it. Next up on the podcast, Sunday, November 15th, we have episode 280. Jessica Ernst is coming on the show to squash keto myths for avoiding overwhelm. Really excited about that one. And Wednesday, November 18th, episode 281. We have Anya Fernald chatting with us about meat. Okay. We've chatted about meat a lot on the show, but I'd have to say this is definitely my favorite episode about meat. So if you eat meat, you got to listen to this episode. It's a good one. Also, this is really great news. Starting with episode 280, all of our episodes where there is a guest, oftentimes like 99% of the time, It'll also be on YouTube as a video. So you'll see the guest and I interacting as a video on YouTube. So you can go to healthfulpursuit.com slash video to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And I'll see you on YouTube next week for the podcast. And if you want to just keep listening here 
on these, this app that you're listening to. That's cool too. I just really wanted to add video with our guests because I mean, we're recording it. Why don't we share it? So I will see you on Sunday, November 15th. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. Join us again in a couple of days to discover more Keto for Women secrets for your fat-fueled life. The Keto Diet Podcast, including show notes and links, provides information in respect to healthy living, nutrition, and diet, and is intended for informational purposes only. The information provided is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor should it be construed as such. We cannot guarantee that the information provided on the Keto Diet Podcast reflects the most up-to-date medical research. Information is provided without any representations or warranties of any kind. Please consult a qualified physician for medical advice and always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your health and nutrition program. 